12th century was a time when Europe was slowly picking itself up from the darkness and the despair of the previous seven centuries. It was a time when learning was starting to come back. It was a time when experimenting new technology. They had discovered a century earlier how to harness a horse, and it changed everything for plowing fields. It was also a time when the same old enemies, the Islamic world, was attacking. And the question was, for them as well as us, how do you respond to evil? You and I claim to follow the Prince of Peace. How do you and I, when people are doing wrong, how do we respond? Well, there was two ways for our brothers and sisters in the 12th century. Monasteries and crusades. Monasteries, they dropped out and made a parallel culture from the corrupt bureaucratic church that was going on. And the crusades, they violently confronted the conquering of the Holy Land by the Muslim world. Jesus said, I know a better way. If you have your Bible, would you take it out and stand with me for the reading of God's Word and turn to Matthew, the 7th chapter. It's on page 788 in your pew Bible. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. As Jesus is addressing His followers as well as His enemies, He tells them how to respond to people who do wrong. If you're visiting, we read this together out loud as a sign of God's people. We get done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you'll say, thanks be to God. So let's read one through six. And as you read, listen carefully, you're reading God's word. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the bloom fades, but those words will last forever. When someone's suffering, for you and me as Christians, it's fairly easy. You're supposed to help them. You feed the hungry. You care for the widows and orphans. You share with the poor. You visit those in prison. But how do you respond when those people are doing wrong, the perpetrators of evil in the world? Well, Jesus says it's real simple. You love them. Not the mushy sentimentality that's really avoidance behavior that's cloaked because we don't want to get our hands dirty. But love, as C.S. Lewis said, is wishing somebody's highest welfare. He's actually rephrasing Aquinas there. If you want somebody's best, you love them. Interpersonally, you and I just read, we are to conclude, even confront, but never judge. And there's a difference. If you've ever been in court, And I was several times uh, experimenting in my early years. And when you stand before the judge, two things take place. One is there's a verdict, guilty or not. Then there is the punishment. You and I are called to make conclusions about people. We're not supposed to have our heads completely taken off. But we're not supposed to punish them. But when it comes to society, we're going to see from the Apostle Paul, though we conclude we don't judge with each other interpersonally, A society needs justice, but not vengeance. 
And to put justice into the city of Los Angeles or in our businesses or in this nation means that we have to understand the Word of God in a way much deeper than people do today. You learn how to react to the people that do wrong. And in my years of being a pastor, I think it's one of the biggest barometers of your control of the Holy Spirit, of how you and I respond appropriately to those who do us wrong. And as we learn to liberate ourselves and others, the 12th century has a lot to teach us. If you've got your Bibles, let's turn back and take a look at this Matthew 7 passage a little closer on page uh, 788 in your pew Bible. You know, it's not just ignoring people. I'm uh, sure uh, you know as uh, we look at tonight at the uh, Academy Awards, those of that will be looking at that, you know, the movies teach you certain things. I don't know if you know that or not. Someone sent me one of the things that you learn from the movies. If you're being chased through a town, you can take cover in a passing St. Patrick's Day parade any time of the year. Have you noticed that? It's safe. Second of all, uh, it's easy for anyone to land a plane providing there's someone in the control tower talking you down, no matter what happens in a movie. I love this one. This is really true. The Eiffel Tower can be seen from any building in Paris. Have you noticed that? No matter, totally wherever you're at. Uh, it also, the uh, truth is that should you wish to pass yourself off as a German officer, you don't need to speak the language, just a German accent. That's the truth. Uh, the other interesting thing is that honest and hardworking policemen are usually gunned down three days before their retirement. That's true in every movie. You and I learn a lot from this culture. And we learn it a lot from our media. That's why I praise the Lord for so many of you so involved in the industry, not just in being wise consumers, but in creating that. But what does Jesus say about evil? Basically, Hollywood says, don't get mad, get even. Because it's appealing to a sense of justice. Look what Jesus says. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. The judgment you make, you'll be judged. And the measure you apply to others will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye and don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye? Well, there's a log in your own. You hypocrite. Take the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Jesus is not saying don't have any standards. How many times I heard people say, you're not supposed to judge, you're not supposed to judge. Just do whatever you want, just not judge. No, no, that's not what he's saying. He is saying it's amazing the double standards we set up. I hold all of you to certain standards, and I hold me to other standards. Because I judge you by your actions, and I judge me by my intentions. If I meant to do right, but I really didn't do it, and I have mitigating circumstances why I do what I... Well, I give myself a lot of slack. But when you do things that bug me, all of a sudden, I hold you to a higher standard. Jesus says, should you let people run around with specks in their eye that are hurting them? No. But he says, first things first. We all need to get on our knees and say, God, I have so much wrong in my own life. And before I go running around trying to help others, like Typhoid Mary, Typhoid Mary, remember, she carried typhus and she spread it everywhere. She was a carrier, but she didn't get to contract the disease for a long time. And before we go running around as a church spreading the bad infection, Jesus says, I need to heal you first. So yes, we have to make these decisions. The fickleness of our own hearts. But then he says this weird thing, same breath. 
You realize, don't you, he didn't put in chapters or verses like he didn't take a break and come back after lunch and say this. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearl before swine. They trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. What does that mean? Doesn't that sound a little judgmental? Calling somebody a swine and a dog in the Jewish culture is hardly a group hug. What is Jesus talking about? He just said, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. You hypocrites. Now, but you do need to make conclusions. You don't buy an alcoholic another drink if you love them. You don't buy somebody wrestling with the crack another line of Coke or whatever it is if you think you're trying to help them. If you loan money to somebody because they're in need, good. If they choose to never go get a job because you are the udder in their life that they can milk, that's not loving to them. That's enabling to them. So Jesus is saying, just because you think something's precious like pearls, swine don't. Just because you think, well, look at a cute little wild dog. Here, Fifi. Just because you think it's cute doesn't mean a wild hyena isn't going to go for your throat. The precious things to God do not expect this world to honor or understand. You've got to love intelligently. I was working out uh, down at the Balboa Flats. I work out twice a year down here. And <laughs> Carol and I were running around, you know, that lap around there. And they have all these dog, you know, they play cricket down there. You know, the Indians and Pakistanis are always having these wild games of cricket down there. Uh, but then they have these dog shows. And I saw this lady, she got out of her car with her dog and she had her lunch. And she sat it down. She said to this dog, don't eat that. And then she went back in her car. And she came, of course, what's Fido do? He sucks it down. She came back and went nuts on the dog. She said, I told you, that was my, that was my favorite meal. What, what are you doing? Eating? First of all, somebody that talks to a dog that much, you know, um, but anyway, you don't put a ham sandwich in front of a dog or me and expect it not to be eaten, right? No, it was the dog that took it. It was the dog that took it. So what's precious to God is his church. There might be a stimulus package going on right now in Washington, D.C. for the economy, and I pray it works. There's no stimulus package for the church. It's God's people that are going to take care of across this great nation, the church. You don't just say, well, I hope somebody else helps. You know what's precious to the Lord? I wish i just find a friend. You don't find friends. You make friends. Why do we tell you to get into these small groups and sign up, and I'm really expecting everybody, if this is your church home, for the next six to eight weeks to try and be in one of these groups. Why do you come out here? Because these people are precious to the Lord. And you don't just throw them out there into life and say, I hope somebody takes care of them. And so God calls us to be able to understand. Now, you don't love them the way they want you to love them. You love them what you think is the very best. Sometimes they don't know what they don't know. They want to tell you, back off, quit judging me. And they're right. You don't treat them like they're pariah or that they're lepers. No, you love them, embrace them. If you can't be in a discussion, how can they ever find the truth of God? And this culture right now loathes Christians, conservative Christians, because it looks like we're against everything. Well, unless we have the relationship to be able to discuss with them, how in the world are they going to learn? But they don't know what they don't know. I told you before, uh, when Vanessa, my oldest, was 
a toddler, she was running around. And why at ages, you know, like 18 months to two years, are there human vacuum cleaners? Everything in the mouth, you know? You, you lay something down, they put it in the mouth. I came in and because I was a new father, uh, I wasn't thinking well, and I had left my razor out in the bathroom. And I came in and she picked it up. And she was about ready to suck on that thing. And I took it out of her hand. And of course she said, thank you, father. <laughs> nah, she threw a temper fit. What are you doing? It was just shiny. It was fun. You take it out of my hands. Well, I have knowledge that she didn't. And God very often in our life will take things from us that we go, Lord, can you tell me why? And when he says, I love you, and you don't understand what is going on, but I do. And when we go out and we tell the world there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live, they don't understand. Paul says that. Turn with me over to Romans and to the 12th chapter, page 923 in your pew Bible. As he's writing to the heart of the decadent capital itself. There are Jews and Gentiles that are followers of Jesus now, and he tells them how to respond. In verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and don't curse them. Rejoice with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. That's not natural, by the way. Have you ever had somebody come up and go, is it great? I won the lotto. Don't you always think, wow, how come I didn't? (laughs) Or when someone's sad, how come you, you know, Christians always go, someone's in a bad place, they've lost something, Christians always go, I'm sure there's a silver lining. And then you want to take them by their lip and pull it over their head. Have you noticed that? No, when someone's happy, you'd be happy. When someone's sad, you're sad to them. He said, don't. And when someone swears at you, don't curse them. Live in harmony with everyone. Don't be haughty. Associate with the inner ring. No. Associate with the lowly. Don't claim to be smarter than you are. Never repay evil for evil. Take thought what's noble in the sight of all. If it's possible, and Paul's saying it's not always possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemy's hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. By doing this, you'll heap burning coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul said, when someone does you wrong, you don't take wrong back. Why? You go, I really want to hit him. Paul says... Let God hit them. God hits them harder. You and I, our sense of justice is so confused because we're infected with this disease called sin that between vengeance and justice is really hard for us interpersonally to ever really get clear. And the way to be free when someone has harmed you, and I mean the ones that have harmed you. I don't mean they've angered or that you've had a bad hair day. I mean they've stabbed you in the back. The way you get back is by you giving it to God. You say, Lord... You sort this all out. And God says, I will sort it out. He'll, and that's why, as Abraham Lincoln, as we celebrate his 200th birthday, said, I never pray for justice because God might give it. <laughs> in other words, that we're all in need. But then look what Paul says here, same breath. Let everyone be subject to the government authorities, chapter 13. For there's no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will get judgment. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do good, and you'll receive its approval. It is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. 
Therefore, one must be subject not only because of wrath, but because of conscience. For the same reason, you're to pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Revenue to whom revenue is due. Respect to whom respect is due. Honor to whom honor is due. He's talking about the Roman Empire, by the way. What is Paul? Wait a minute. Paul said, don't bless them, turn around. Then he turns around and he says, the government will do this. Well, he will, at some point, of course, Caesar will be known as the Antichrist because he persecutes the Christians. And Paul says, you continue to be a class act, but you always support where you're at. Until it comes to the place where they go against the things of God, then you stand even to the plate of martyrdom. We are to give justice. These guys, as Ed said, down in the prisons and the jail here in L.A., some of them are bad boys and girls. And they deserve what they have. Yes, there are consequences for behavior. If you don't have consequences for behavior, you have anarchy. Interpersonally, though, we long for them to be better. The people that have done you wrong, you can't forgive them. You really can't. But God can through you. When someone does me wrong, the hardest thing for me to pray, because I know God will answer it. And it ticks me off. As I say, Lord, would you forgive them through me? And I hate saying that prayer because I can't be rescued by grudge. Uh, 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 grudge to the rescue, you know? Even when I can't get back at them, I can always say, well, I can resent that so-and-so. But not as a Christian. As a follower of Christ, you say, Lord, would you forgive them? So we conclude, yeah, they've done wrong. You don't punish them. Yes, there is justice. But how do you respond to this society? Do you stay on the bus? In the 12th century, the monasteries were the continual movement. We've been studying them. A gentleman by the name of Bernard of Clairvaux, French for the Valley of Clare, is a brilliant man. And following Gregory VII, followed in the idea of celibacy for priesthood. Why celibacy? Remember, we studied a century earlier. There were over 100 popes, or 26 popes in 100 years. Some of them appointed by, they were anti-popes competing with each other. Some of them were siring so many children. And so the Pope finally says, that's it. Nobody gets married. I don't know if he said in an Italian accent or not. <laughs> but that's why celibacy, because they were pulling their hair out. Going, Can't you guys control yourself? And the three vows that a priest takes today comes from this century. Poverty, chastity, and obedience. You ever seen a priest uh, be ordained? You're not invited. It's private. But I snuck in one time. You should do this too. And you'll see these young men, and they will lay down on the stone floor in the face on the side of a cross. And they'll take the three vows. They will never have sex, chastity. They will never own any property, poverty, and obedience. Wherever the church sends them, they will go. Now, I don't agree with all of those vows, but I tell you, i got to salute the dedication that they do. That comes from this guy, Bernard, and saying this is what it means to be set aside to Christ. This is also the time when the veneration of Mary hits its peak. This longing for the maternal side of God. And I have to say, we as Protestants don't give Mary enough due. She was a remarkable woman. And by the way, Mary was Jewish. She wasn't Italian, just in case you confuse that. And this young Jewish girl who was the deliverer of the Son of God, of the Messiah, needs to be honored. And I think there's this longing for this maternal side of God also. God is beyond male and female. We speak to him as God the Father, not God the Mother, notice, any time in Scripture. But there's this longing, and so Mary gets venerated very high. He also preached about the Second Crusade. 
The Knights Templar, you may have heard of them. Templar comes from the Temple Mount. These were originally the really salty boys. They were kind of the special forces of the Crusades. And they went over originally to liberate Jerusalem. They called it the Kingdom of Jerusalem. But in between, they were in the middle, but there was a gentleman from the other side by the name of Saladin. Saladin was a Kurd. He was a devout Muslim. He was a great warrior. He was the Sultan of Egypt and of Syria, and in between was the Kingdom of Jerusalem. And he wanted to conquer Jerusalem because, remember, the Temple Mount is the third holiest spot to the Islamic world. The Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is up there, where they believe that Muhammad ascended to heaven and came back down and received a revelation. And so Saladin came. He was a remarkable warrior, but this is how good the Knights Templar were. The first time he came against them, 500 of these guys, Knights Templar, defeated 26,000 of Saladin's men because of their different formations. There were some bad boys swinging the sword for Jesus out there. Saladin regrouped and he realized, but he was a really classy man. When Richard I lost his horse in battle, Saladin sent two of his best for him, kind of the code of ethics. When Richard I was sick, Saladin sent his own doctor with a special beverage. It was frozen fruit around snow. He was so powerful, they brought snow from Mount Hermon. So he sent Richard I the first Jamba Juice (laughs) to show him When he conquered, he finally regrouped. He never maimed people when they were defeated. He never executed the prisoners of war. Something the crusaders did all the time. And even when he will finally reconquer Jerusalem in 1187, he let them buy their way out rather than... He could have put them to the sword and he didn't. And so the crusaders learned from their enemy something about chivalry. But in the middle of this, what is happening is learning is growing. And there was a desire to learn about learning again. They traveled to Spain to learn about math and science from the Arabs, the Moors that were there. They traveled to Constantinople to get original Greek documents to learn about Socrates and Aristotle. And learning was starting to go again. And three universitats, which means a gathering of people, not a place, the university. In Bologna for law, the first doctorate of jurisprudence because the church and state were one. Paris became the hub of theology, which Calvin will come out of. And Oxford were all founded in this century. And learning is starting to go. But there are so many people that say, teach me, teach me. They have to make new places for them to stay overnight. And if you read 12th century documents, all they complain about is the collegians are doing nothing but throwing parties and getting hammered. Isn't it great times have changed? (laughs) Why we are doing our meeting down at the bridge... Why are we down in little Tokyo and working downtown and in these other sites, the Lord willing, we go? Because we're trying to be the good virus. We exist to connect other churches and to bless other churches, not for us. But when people pray for revival, I tell them, whoa, 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 whoa. This Easter, every church will be so packed, you won't be able to get in. We'll have over 10,000 people at the Hollywood Bowl. On this Easter, maximum... 34 to 35% of this city will be at worship. What in the world would we do if 50% of Los Angeles said, I want to be a Christian? When people are always praying for revival, I tell them, knock it off until we are ready. And I think very often that God doesn't respond until his people are ready. 
that's why it's so important that you learn to lead, whether it's in a small group or teaching, to learn this word. God, I believe the times we're in, no one knows when Christ is going to return. If these are not the end times, they're certainly parallel to what they'll be like. But I think the greatest church is in front of us, and he's waiting to raise up people. And I think he's going to give more of his Holy Spirit in the next church than was given in the last 20 centuries. I totally believe that. And many of you that are out there, God is going to use in that way. Well, as they gathered together, they started to create, now that they had new technology, sermons in stone. The cathedrals. You didn't go to the cathedral every Sunday, by the way. You went to your little parish. The cathedrals were for the big holy days. But they invented something called the flying buttress. And like Notre Dame, Our Lady, again, the veneration of Mary, this is the century they they built this tiny little chapel. You see these wings coming off the side? That holds the weight. Stone was so heavy they were building these like in St. Andrews, but they collapsed in on themselves. The flying buttress let them go up higher and it dispersed the weight out. They put in beautiful stained glass because of the people. They were the illustrations and they were the cartoons, if you will, the teaching aids for the illiterate. They saw the saints and they saw the biblical stories. And what these cathedrals were used a lot for, they took the old stone and they reworked it. And it's such a parable what God wants to do in our life. God wants to take the pains and the hurts in your life and mine and retool them and reuse them. Just like the flying buttress took the weight so it could hold. Man, to be alive today, oh my goodness, the pressure. Jesus says, come to me and take my burden upon you. Let me take your burden. Because your burden is just staying walking next to me. We in a moment are going to have a moment for healing for any of you that want. We do this periodically. There's nothing magical about olive oil. So why do we use it? Last passage, turn over to John or James, the fifth chapter. It's on page 983 in your pew Bible. And James, who, remember, mocks Jesus to his face. He's the half-brother of Jesus before the crucifixion. This might be the first document reduced to writing. We don't know yet. It's a very old book uh, of the canon of the New Testament. But he calls Jesus never my brother. He calls him my Lord. And after the resurrection, he will die for his faith. But he writes to his church saying this, verse 13. Are there any of you suffering? They should complain. No, wait, let me read this. Are any of you suffering? They should pray. Bring it to God. Are any of you cheerful? Sing songs of praise. Share it with others. Are any of you sick? They should call for the elders of the church who will pray, pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. And anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being just like us, and he prayed fervently it might not rain. And for three years, six months, it did not rain on the earth. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. Why oil? Well, oil was a sign of medicine in the Old Testament. Bind up my wounds, the psalmist says, with wine and oil. It was like a liquid bandage, both antiseptic and anesthetic as well. I believe in the medical science that God has given us today. I totally believe in it that God uses that. But there's a healing that almost supercharges our knowledge. So James is saying, give them Advil and pray for them. 
Oil is a sign of using the medicine of that day. But it's also a sign of being set aside. When Aaron, when they poured oil on his head or on young David as king or Saul, they are now set aside to a special service. When we have our elders and our prayer teams in different places in the sanctuary, when you come up to them, and they're not going to pour oil on your head like a toss salad. They're not going to do that. But when they take a little bit of this oil with frankincense and they anoint you, what they're saying is, we are setting you aside now for a bullseye, for God to answer. And it's different than just praying. I prayed for a lot of people. They weren't healed in the way that I want. I prayed for people here in this church. They have been healed. Our prayer team prays for it. We had a doctor at this last hour came forward and he was talking about he's been having problems with his back and he spent tons of money. And he came up afterwards and we were praying for We said, can we pray for your back? He says, nah, you healed that last time. But I got another problem now. <laughs> we had a lady come here a month ago and she we prayed for her afterwards. She just came two weeks. She, she went in to doing a procedure to look at these tumors and went in and the tumors were gone. And the doctor, her doctor said, these things happen. Well, whatever. I'm just glad that these things happen. There is no promise that God will heal your body. But there is a promise. You bring it to me and I'll do things that you really want. Sometimes you want to be prayed for in a relationship. Sometimes you have this darkness and you need like this flying buttress to get somebody to help support you. Hey, I believe in psychology. I got a degree in it. I believe in psychiatry. But there's a thing, when you pray for peace and anointed with oil, it's almost spooky that God gives you such a calm in your life. You might want to pray for somebody else, in other words, knowing how to pray. God raises up people with the right prayer before He answers. That's a mystery I don't understand, but that's how God works. You might want to say, I want to pray for this. You might want to pray for your relationship, whatever it is. You come forward and you say, would you pray for me? Let somebody anoint you with oil. And God says... I will hear. I don't know exactly what the Lord will do. But as the Bible says, you know ASCII, you know Getty. (laughs) Let's pray, shall we? God, I thank you that you have come and you work in mysterious ways. And Lord, I do thank you for the science of how us knowing this incredible cosmos that you have made. But God, we are such children. And we thank you that we come in childlike faith. Not childish, but childlike. And just are obedient to you, the Lord, you hear. And so, Lord, I pray that right now as we would respond, that, Lord, you would hear the cries of your people. Oh, Jesus, send the Holy Spirit. And he does what he does best. Heal your people and glorify you. Thank you, Christ. Come now. For your sake we pray. Amen.